Howdy folks, welcome back, and if this is your first time here, thanks for joining me. Hey, even if you've subscribed to the podcast on your mobile device, make sure you subscribe to my Substack for even more life science content, including life science, marketing radio, and things I write that I don't necessarily put out on a podcast. You can find it at cclifescience.substack.com. Before we start today, I want to shout out to Chuck Miller for introducing me to today's guest. And now, let's get right to it. Okay, AJ Malott is the CEO and co-founder of Ronoc, a biotechnology company formed to commercialize stem cell expansion technologies. AJ, welcome to CC Life Science. Thanks, Chris. I'm excited to be here and appreciate the invite. Uh, my pleasure. This is going to be a fun one, and we're going to talk about exactly that, stem cell expansion technologies. Yeah. Um, so remind people who may not be familiar with the challenge of culturing primary cell lines. Yeah. So when it comes to culturing primary cells, um, it's interesting because the way we grow cells outside the body is not how they grow inside the body. So for example... Most people are probably familiar with a Petri dish. It's a plastic dish. We put the cells in and then we grow them in 2D and it's really hard. And there's nothing that's anywhere close to as hard as plastic in your body. Furthermore, everything inside of you is contoured in 3D and it's not flat. So when we uh, put them in a, a Petri dish, that's not how they respond uh, when compared to the body. And then also... Um, to keep the cells growing, typically what you're doing is you are, you grow them and then you let them divide until they take up the whole surface area of the dish. And then you got to put this toxin in, remove them, and then you, you put them in additional dishes and you do that over and over. And then the cells basically just get tired. They're like, I'm done. Uh, I'm not going to divide anymore. And they look less and less like the cells uh, that you originally started with. So their ability to be used for different therapeutic research diminishes over time as well. Yeah, they had enough of this game. You keep yeah. shaking me up and putting me in a new plate and it's always the same <laughs> groundhog day. Yeah. So, I mean, they just, they, they quit. They're like, I'm done. No, thank you. Yeah. So um, let's talk about how we get around that. What What's the solution that you're working on? So at Roanoke, um, this was born out of uh, having to do this process over and over in a lab and realizing that most people uh, don't have the money for big, fancy bioreactors and thinking about, hey, that's not how cells grow in, uh, normally. So um, what we decided to do is we took a hydrogel, which is kind of a buzzword I think everyone's hearing. Um, some of the hydrogels we use every day in our lives include soft contact lenses or if you like Jell-O. Um, those are our common hydrogels. But basically they are these polymer networks that hold over 90% water and we can tune the mechanical properties and kind of do anything we want with them. So instead of making a blob of a hydrogel, what we did at Ronoc is we decided to put micro channels into our hydrogel and we shaped it like a puzzle piece. And that was very strategic so that there were two things we were doing. One for the cells, we wanted to give them a place where they could grow. They could interact with each other like they would in the body. They could make 3d micro environments and unlike other uh, cell cultures out there where they get restricted into making these balls, uh, the cells in our um, substrates and our hydrogels can keep growing. And then when they need more room, you just connect another piece like a puzzle 
And so it's just like Lego blocks. And the cells are happy. Uh, they start making their own um, tissue-like uh, substances. And it's really fascinating because now we're starting to see things that happen inside our hydrogels that we can point to the body and look and say, oh, this is similar. I see this happening in the body. And we can get more information out of uh, what's going on. And we can even start looking at the signaling between the cells and how they talk to each other. So from a scientific perspective, it's really fun. But then also from a business perspective, we now have this really easy to use technology that um, can help others scale, help others try new experiments and test new medicines that weren't easy to test before this. Yeah, a lot of things I want to talk about that in that. First of all, I'd never really thought about my contact lenses as a hydrogel. Makes total sense because mm -hmm. I've seen them when they dry up. Yep. And they are mostly water. <laughs> it, 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 I don't really think about, I mean, I definitely understand Jello as a similar thing, but I didn't really think that those are both two versions of the same thing. Yeah. Right? One's yeah. digestible, the other one, hopefully not. But Yep. So, and hydrogels come in all shapes and forms and formulations. So, some degrade and are digestible and others are not. So, I'm going to dig a little deeper on that. You had to pick one, mm -hmm. probably tested many compounds, and then figured out how to put them into the sh puzzle shapes that you're talking about. That's yeah. part of the challenge. Yeah, it is. But it's also really exciting, too. So... If you think of uh, a hydrogel formulation, I mean, it's chemistry, but there's a lot of different ingredients we can work with, so to speak. And so um, there's a lot of hydrogels out there that are pretty common, like polyethylene glycol, um, gelatin methacrylate, alginate, collagen, etc. And we can modify them. And essentially, it's like making chili. So we can make a different recipe multiple different ways. And every time we make a new formulation, we can impart different properties into that hydrogel. So if there's some that we want to, say, make more stiff than others, or we want to make them more elastic and soft or biodegradable versus non-degradable, we have the ability to use all that to our advantage. And the reason that's advantageous is when you start really thinking about different tissues in your body that you're essentially trying to mimic and grow cells for, we can now adjust um, the hydrogel to mimic our tissue of interest so that we get higher quality cells, better interactions, better outputs because we have better inputs. And so that's really exciting. And there's a lot of that, um, those values that are already published, um, those parameters on different tissues. But, you know, if we want to target a liver or a kidney or something stiff like bone, we can do that and see how the cells respond. And what's great is we can build on what's already in the literature. So by making our product, we're also able to further um, corroborate research that's already out there and say, yeah, we reproduced it. We sat, we found the same results when we, you know, use the same stiffness, the same mechanical factors or the same chemistry. We got the same behavior in the same type of cells. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. So I want to go still going back to your previous answer about the ability for cells, you know, when they've reached their limit and you want to add more puzzle pieces, more substrate for them to grow on. I'm curious about the biology of the guys that are staying behind. I'm presuming 
the division occurs in the cells on the outer edge. Do you see what do I guess compared to, you know, when they're limited in a petri plate and they get tired of being passage, uh-huh. but a cell is perfectly happy to grow old in place as long as its offspring are reproducing. Well, sort of. So there's this really interesting thing that happens in in our blocks, and we've seen this with multiple different cell types. But keep in mind, every every cell type, whether you're you know a kidney cell, cartilage cell, bone, whatever, some of the behavior is a little different. But typically, what happens is we'll put cells, we'll seed them into the microchannels, and they'll attach to the inner surface of the microchannel. And you'll have some cells that are just going to hang out um, and kind of um, almost like they're they're setting up camp. You're going to have other cells that are going to go explore the microchannel and they're going to scout. And then they all sort of come back and they regroup a little bit. Um, and that takes, depending on the cell type, three to five days. And then this explosion happens where the cells start dividing. They start secreting extracellular matrix and building structures. And they start basically expanding out through the microchannel. And then what happens is if we need to connect another block and we do, our blocks are made such that um, the microchannels between two blocks align when you connect them. So basically what we just did is we gave them more space. And so they keep moving and they keep expanding. Yeah, there's some that are going to stay right where they started, but they become a community and they keep moving and building. And it's just really exciting to see because we can keep them going. And we've gone, we've had internal studies where we've gone for like 60 days where we've kept this going and we, um, the cells are healthy, they're viable, um, and um, it's just, it's really fascinating to watch. I could geek out on the engineering that it takes just to get those channels to align, but also, besides, you know, the commercial application of this and the ability to grow a large quantity of cells in a more realistic way, is the biology academically that's possible for you to slice these things open, I presume, and look at the scouts, for example. Like, who would have known? Like, some go out and they come back and then they talk to each other and say, all right, got to build a tent. We're going to stay, whatever. So that you hit on one of the cool things that we also kind of, we designed into um, our hydrogels. And we call them bioblocks just to make it easy conceptually. But when we're working with a bioblock, we can do a couple different things, which is really advantageous. We can either uh, fix the block in something like formalin, just like you would fix normal animal or human tissue. And then we can basically um, embed the block in either like a paraffin or um, an OCT cryo uh, media. And then we can section it on a microtome or cryostat respectively and make these slides where we have these sections of the block. And so to your point, then we can do staining or immunolabeling to look at what scouts are, or what cells are where um, in the block, what types of cells they became, the scouts versus the ones setting up cam. And just kind of when we put all that together after we take all the images spatially and look at them, it's like, oh, wow, we see all of them moving through the block. And then we can compare it against, say, if we have a, a controlled tissue from an animal or human and, and see how they compare. So that part is just really exciting and gives us more information about how cells behave. And when they are, so to speak, happy, um, they, uh, 
they tend to be more metabolically active. Yeah, now I'm, I mean, we've had a previous conversation, but now I'm really going, my mind is spinning about all the possibilities because typically in a cell culture, you're growing one population, right? Yeah. You start with a clone. Yep. But the possibilities of putting in multiple types and asking how do they behave or, yeah. how, you know, and how does it, how do uh, immune cells infiltrate a tumor, for example, and, and those interactions right. um, from start to finish rather than a fully developed tumor that you open up or do flow cytometry on or whatever. Yep. Yeah. So that's one of the other great things, uh, part of why we designed them that way. That was another frustration um, that my colleagues and I had were how do we do these cult cultures that still mimic what happens in the body? So with the blocks, you can put, say, um, and I came originally out of a, a bone and cartilage lab for my uh, doctoral training a long time ago. But if we put, say, bone cells in one block and cartilage cells in another, and then we connect the two blocks, we can see how they interact. Or to your point, if we have a specific tumor line we're working with and we want to put different immune cells in and see how they infiltrate and react, we can do all that really quickly and really easily. Then we can take the blocks apart. And yes, we do have formulations where the blocks can then be dissolved if you don't want to embed them and slice them. And then you can do things like cell sorting, flow cytometry, or um, even um, collect the cells, lyse them, and do any type of gene expression assay or proteomics. So they're really versatile in that way. And it gives the end user uh, the opportunity to collect more information and um, put some more functional experiments together. Yeah. Um, what else do we want to talk about in terms of learning about tissue formation? Have we covered that or is there more to say about well, that? I will say one of the things um, that I also love about this that I hadn't really focused on that's more of a byproduct of this technology is so the cells grow and they make their structures, but depending on the cell type, like um, a mesenchymal stem cell or a fibroblast or any kind of other connective tissue cell type, when we put them in the blocks, we've also noticed the amount of extracellular matrix they're putting down and secreting is incredible. So now starting to look at the uh, extracellular matrix that they're producing and analyzing and characterizing that is something that's pretty easy to do and gives us more insights to what the cells are doing as they are essentially trying to uh, produce a mature tissue. I don't know anything about extracellular matrix in terms of what's in there. I'm guessing proteins right. and carbohydrates or whatever. Proteins, but um, yeah, things like um, collagen, um, hyaluronic acid. Uh, we've seen, depending on the, the cell type, I can't remember. I'd have to look at my notes, but I want to say... One of the MSCs we use, either from adipose or umbilical cord, we've seen a noticeable uptick in the um, production of hyaluronic acid in the extracellular matrix, which is great for cells that need to migrate, especially in a wound healing context if they're trying to close a wound. Um, uh, but elastin, and there's all kinds of components that are in the extracellular matrix that help give structure and form to a particular tissue. So, yeah, and you just triggered um, a little memory for me. I've been, you know, researching as I do lots of life science companies. Hyaluronic acid is a commercial product for yeah. 
drug formulation, if I'm correct. Is that it, it's used? Um, yes, it is used in different drug formulations. Actually, where you'll see it is kind of topicals and uh, probably most you've seen it for cosmetics. Okay. Like skin restoration and rejuvenation. And um, what is it doing in those cases? So, so the idea is, is that it's, um, I don't know how to say this exactly, but um, it is rejuvenating the skin, um, making it less saggy, um, restoring some of the, uh, not necessarily stiffness, but just the response of the tissue. Uh, the idea is to help smooth out wrinkles and whatnot, but um, hyaluronic acid, one of the things it's really good for that I, I mentioned previously is it's really easy for cells to basically stick to and crawl across and move. And so, right. you know, if the cells are like pulling tissue together as they're moving, then, you know, they're, they're tightening everything up uh, a little bit. And so. that was the connection I was looking for. Yeah. Cause you mentioned about cell migration and, and the hyaluronic acid. And I thought, well, what's it doing in a commercial product? And now I can believe that the wrinkle removers aren't just snake oil. <laughs> there might be something there. Now I'm going to go buy some. All right. Um, what other ways can these cell cultures eventually be used? I mean, of course, I think your primary, tell me if I'm wrong, intent is to be able to just grow large masses of cells in a more realistic environment for testing compounds, producing what? compounds, but what else? That's part of it. Um, there definitely is a focus on producing cells, but you know, where we're really shifting to now is not so much quantity is one thing you put enough blocks together, you can grow a mass amount of cells. But I think what's more important to us is the difference in quality we're seeing of the cells that are growing in our blocks and making these micro tissues and these environments to maintain themselves, excuse me, versus growing them in a Petri dish or another 2d format um, is really giving us some novel insights into what is happening um, with how cells interact and behave biologically. But another thing that we're starting to dive into, and we have some papers that are um, going to, uh, that are going to be coming out later this year, but the preliminary results have already been really exciting, has to do with how cells communicate with each other and what's known as paracrine signaling. So cells are constantly talking to each other by sending um, these little biological packets known as exosomes and extracellular vesicles that contain proteins, growth factors, and a whole number of wonderful things between each other and kind of telling them, hey, how to behave or I'm over here. So you go check out the place over there, all these different things and or how to repair a tissue. And I mentioned that the cells tend to be metabolically more active um, when they grow in our block because they're making their own environment. But they're also communicating more. And we've actively seen this that um, compared to 2D when they're in this sort of 3D tissue mimetic environment, um, they communicate a lot. They're healthier. But we're also able to collect and intercept some of those uh, communication packets, those exosomes and extracellular vesicles, um, because of the nature of our microchannels. We can collect the media that they're in, and then we can characterize those biologics and see what's in them and what's going on. And what we're starting to talk about is the idea of um, exosomes are really hot in life sciences right now. And so the idea is if those could be tailored um, to make new therapies that are acellular, then maybe they could be 
more effective and have a lower risk of um, initiating an immune response if you were to generate exosomes from one individual and use them as a therapy in another. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the exosomes. So I'm trying to imagine, I mean, I'm trying to formulate a question about communication. Is there, I mean, that, and I'm vaguely aware of exosomes. That's the level of my knowledge. They uh -huh. happen. But what do we know about their intent? You say communication. Is there a consistency about what, what would be in, inside those exosomes from a given type of cell? Yeah. So, you a hint? Yeah. Different, different cells have a propensity to secrete different factors and to package into either exosomes or extracellular vesicles. So one of the ways I like to think about it, um, and this is a crude definition, but the analogy I use is um, exosomes are smaller. So they're like sending messages in an envelope. Extracellular vesicles are bigger. So they're like the boxes that, you know, you send through FedEx. And so that changes the, the cargo that you can put in, um, to send to people or to send between cells. But like what we're looking at is, hey, um, if we change something about the cell, is the cell sending exosomes that for lack of a better term are more like love letters to another cell that are positive and encouraging or in our case have a therapeutic, therapeutic purpose where it's sending a you know, very specific growth factor uh, that is helping um, the cell fight a disease. Um, versus, you know, something that's just your whole variety of different types of letters and messages that can be sent. Can we uh, stimulate the cell to send more of the types of letters we want and the messages we want to other cells? And so uh, being able to tailor that um, is going to have a really dramatic effect on what we can do um, eventually downstream for the pharmaceutical world and how we create medicines. And so I think this is just the start with this technology where we might be able to get that ability one day where we can tailor um, the, the biologics, the exosomes and extracellular vesicles that are being secreted from cells and induce the, the type of contents in them that we want for a particular therapy. Yeah, I want to ask you about what you see in terms of that. But before we go to that, um, is there, are exosomes produced at a, a particular stage or density. I'm thinking of quorum sensing in bacteria. You know what I'm talking about? They send out molecules that let other bacteria know that there's enough of them around to do something as a group. Uh, yes and no. Um, exosomes are more of a size and there's a, there's a way they get packaged in the cells. Um, and extracellular vesicles are a bit bigger and have a little bit of a different mechanism. But it's it's really more, um, I mean, it's kind of like that, I, I guess, uh, but it it's both frequency and the type of message um, that's being delivered between cells and, and kind of influences them. So it's kind of like, you know, you get a you get a positive note and, you know, you might be in a good mood for a few hours or that can carry you through a whole day. And so then in turn, you end up being nicer to other people. And you make their day. And so you have this sort of chain reaction effect. Right. So what else? Um, in terms of next generation therapies, mm -hmm. going back to exosomes, paint a picture for me is the best way I could phrase it. Like, what, what do you imagine that we could build our own exosomes and 
or grow them, as you say, yeah. pull them off in the media. Yeah. So that's that's part of the hope. And, you know, with this technology, I, I look at it this way. So it was born out of the frustration of not being able to grow enough cells easily and of a high quality. And so that's a that's a big barrier to testing different therapeutic agents and, and different parameters on, you know, trying to find ways to treat a, a disease. So with this technology, I look at it as an opportunity to change um, the economics of scale of what we're able to do so we can more easily produce um, cells with less human labor because we can put things in parallel and we can do it in a smaller footprint. Our bio blocks are a cubic centimeter and they fit really well in six well plates. And, you know, if you're taking a metric of, you know, on the low end, if one block is the equivalent of maybe like a T75, well, you can fit 24 of our blocks in a six well. So instead of filling up 24 T75s in five minutes, you you add media and cells to a six well plate and you're done and you're just saving yourself a lot of labor. So now the scale of what people can do very easily in their own lab uh, to produce cells as test subjects and to screen different agents just got a lot easier and expanded what they could do. And so part of the reason our company says we're accelerating next generation therapies is because we're allowing people to do more with less. And so we don't speed up biology, but now if you're doing an experiment where you could only test maybe two different ideas, maybe now you can test up to eight or 10 ideas for the same amount of effort and time. That's a perfect segue. I'm going to wrap up on that one because one of the next episodes I hope to put on this podcast is around design of experiments where you're taking multiple variables and figuring out what's the best route. So that'll be perfect transition into that. And yeah, the whole thing is good, not just, you know, speed scale, but the incredible um, resource for actual biology that comes with all that is awesome. So AJ Malat, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. That was a treat for me. I hope you're digging these conversations as much as I do. I've got more fascinating episodes coming, including manufacturing in space. I'm working on an episode to get some people to talk about design of experiments, DOE, reviving the woolly mammoth, and more. Your colleagues are probably interested in the same thing, so be sure to share this with them. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.